Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, joining the show today from Tunisia. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today, Dr. Annalisa Marciano joins the show for a conversation that's going to explore what scholars know about ancient Roman farming on the Italian peninsula. And for the most part, we're going to focus the dialogue in on the second to second centuries BCE, CE, respectively, today. Professor Marciano is an Italian-American ancient historian and archaeologist. She is a professor in the Department of Classics at the University of Reading, based in the UK. She's author of the books, Harvesting the Sea, The Exploitation of Marine Resources in the Roman Mediterranean, which was published by Oxford University Press, and the forthcoming book, Plants, Politics, and Empire in Ancient Rome, which will be published by Cambridge University Press. And Professor Marciano joins the show today from the UK. Welcome to the show, Annalisa. Thank you very much, and thank you for having me. It's good to connect with you, Annalisa. So let's start with the, the time period. I mentioned it in the, the introduction that we would focus in on the second to second centuries for the most part today, BCE, CE, respectively. What was it about, and, and the second to second centuries, BCE and CE, was the period that uh, you, you told me in advance that you spent most of your research on. What was it about that period of time that interested you as a scholar to, uh, to, to research more? Well, it's, um, it's a period of very profound changes as far as the history of Rome is concerned. The last two centuries of the Republic, so we're talking about uh, the period from 200 uh, BC um, to the, the end of that, to then, you know, uh, entering into the AD era, is when Rome had completed the conquest of the Italian peninsula, started expanding already in the Mediterranean, coming across the other powers of the time, I mean, particularly we're thinking about uh, Carthage. Uh, you're connecting from uh, Tunisia today, Andrew, so that's, you know, where, uh, of course, the great power of Carthage was. And uh, it's a time where uh, there is huge territorial expansion for Rome, acquiring overseas territories, which had an impact uh, on the social political structure of Rome as well, uh, with uh, then the basically the crisis of the republican institutions that occurs at the end of the first century uh, BC and the birth of what we refer to as the empire, the imperial system. So a different type of uh, uh, you know system of ruling and governing where really there is one person now that counts quite a lot, the emperor. Um, so first for this reason, because of course the change and expansion territorially and it, and the changes that they had in Rome politically, it's a very interesting thing to study the various phenomena. And then once we enter the uh, imperial period, uh, up to about um, 200 AD, that's considered to really have been the peak uh, in Rome, um, flourishing. Uh, if we look at things such as um, uh, the economy, uh, if we look at the development that we can see in urban centers across the empire with the uh, urban infrastructure, the type of public buildings being erected and so forth. So that's really peaked. You know, once we reach about 180 AD, um, then things start not to go that well anymore for a variety of reasons. So my focus on, on these 400 years is mostly because it's a time of, you know, great 
changes in interest, but and then the peak really, uh, as far as Roman concerned, in terms of the uh, development of the economy, which is one of the aspects that I'm uh, interested in studying. I don't want to make the presumption entering this conversation for this context today. How do you define farming? Well, farming uh, is, um, of course, the obvious cultivation of crops is all the activity that rotate around the land. So it's cultivating the land to produce a crop, but and it is uh, also uh, animal husbandry. Now, uh, one thing important is very important to remember is that um, you know ancient Rome, like any other pre-industrial societies, was really relying um, heavily on agriculture. I mean, agriculture was the main sector of the economy, uh, and it meant that the ability to produce agricultural surplus was really the key determining factor as far as demographic growth is concerned and consequently, you know, as far as possible economic growth is concerned. Um, and, uh, you know, the agriculture was the occupation that really occupied the, the majority of the population of, um, you know, ancient Rome or the and the ancient Roman world. Uh, the vast majority of, of people would be in, in a manner or another occupied in the agricultural sector. As a scholar, what are the main sources you rely on, either the main sources or the types of sources that you rely on that has you understand this, this topic? Well, it's a, it's a combination of uh, archaeological sources, um, what we call documentary, and literary. So we have, I'm going to start with the last I mentioned, the literary sources. With, I refer... Um, with literary sources, I refer to uh, texts, you know, Latin texts, Latin authors, Roman authors who have written about a variety of things. And we have some um, very important texts when it comes to studying uh, ancient farming practices and agriculture, which are the uh, texts of the authors we call the agronomists. So basically treatises specifically about agricultural practices, now to best manage um, agricultural estate. And, uh, there were several of these uh, texts that were written in antiquity. Not all of them survived all the way down to us, but we have three of them. Uh, one is um, Cato, the Elder's Treatise on Agriculture. More than a treatise, is, it's been compared by some as a sort of a, um, you know, farmer's uh, almanac kind of thing because it gives a series of advices in, and sometimes it seems also a bit kind of random the way you know it, it, the topics are covered. Um, but that's it is an important text because it tells us things such as you know what he uh, thought he was writing you know in the uh, early part of the second century BC he would tell us you know what he thought for instance um, um, how many uh, workmen you might need in terms of manpower if you had an olive grove of a certain extension and about if you had a vineyard and what type of equipment you needed to have in your farm. And you know the kind of practical advices, uh, also some kind of you know remedies. Uh, what if somebody is ill with this, or if your animal is doesn't you know is not well? What kind of remedies you can use? Sometimes the mixture of magic in it. But there are very concrete information about the uh, how to manage at the time what they thought was the best way of managing a rural estate and the type of crops you will grow. Uh, then we have. Um, written in the first century BC at about the time of Caesar, Varro, 
and that's a more elaborate type of treatise on uh, on agriculture, longer definitely than Cato. And then following that, in the early uh, first century AD, Columella. And so this in terms of written sources at the major, they're not the only one, because you can find information about farming in also the Latin text, but this has to be the major and a very, very important for us. Uh, they talk about the varieties of grapes or olives or all the, you know, fruit existing. They're talking about uh, how to raise animals and how to choose the best spot, uh, what kind of, you know, soil is suited for what kind of crops and so forth. Then we have, we might have inscriptions uh, that contribute. So for example, um, there might be a text um, uh, talking about uh, um, a scheme for drawing water from a river and how that water can be used and allocated for irrigation by communities that live, uh, live along that, uh, the, that river. Uh, such an inscription was discovered some years ago in Spain, for example. And that can tell us something about you know, farming and practices about farming. And then uh, most importantly is archaeology, so the actual excavation of sites, the field survey that can tell you about the spread and diffusion of uh, farms and other type of settlements in the countryside, archaeobotanical remains uh, that can identify what kind of crops people were cultivating, what things they were consuming, um, even you know if they were uh, eating things that perhaps were not grown locally because they are type of plants that could not have been cultivated in a specific area for environmental reasons, so, but they testimony are a witness to uh, long-term you know, trade networks and things like that. A very detailed answer. Thank you, Annalisa. I'm going to ask the pr primary question uh, for this type of episode today. What was farming like? And can you, in this period of time, of course, and on the Italian peninsula, and can you share enough details and then we'll work our way more into those details in the dialogue? Well, what was farming like? Uh, well, certainly hard work, as farming normally is and certainly was before mechanization. Um, we, we have a range... Uh, you know, as in the other historical period, also in the, in, in the Roman world, you will have a range of uh, type of properties that wouldn't be, you know, small farms and farmsteads um, with, uh, you know, families uh, basically aiming for subsistence, so trying to uh, cultivate a bit of all they needed, uh, even though, you know, 100% subsistence that did not happen. They, they were always somehow integrated with, with the market. They were always able to acquire other things, but on a, on a small farms and uh, family run, most cases, they will be trying to diversify the type of crop a bit. So maybe focus on one or two type of crops that they were aiming to have a bit of surplus if they were trying to sell something, but then trying to, uh, to grow what they really needed for their own uh, livelihood, uh, you know, pulses and cereals and some vegetables and so forth. And then you will have medium-sized properties, uh, larger, uh, start focusing more on cash crops that could um, guarantee some kind of, um, you know, added value, for instance, um, cultivating grapes to make wine uh, and are very large and larger estate wealthy individuals and the more you start going higher up the the scale in terms of the type of settlement uh, the the larger rural estate then this would have um, 
a combination in terms of the labor force of slaves uh, and um, seasonal laborers hired a moment of uh, a peak where the demand was higher harvest time for example you need you know extra hands but you won't need that same number of people for you all year round and uh, also perhaps having some of the of the estates um, list out to tenants so a combination of of things but certainly slavery was um, you know as we know in the classical world, slavery was prevalent in, in uh, all different areas of, of life and society, not just in uh, thinking about uh, rural estates. Uh, there were being slaves employed in urban workshops uh, in, uh, as uh, domestic servants, uh, as uh, clerks, and so forth. Um, and uh, it was, you know, a, a life that it's hard in the sense that in the Mediterranean, um, climate can be a bit unpredictable. So there is a lot of uncertainties when one relies on uh, agriculture and farming. Uh, and we do see this, for example, in how religion permeates into these areas, how you might find um, a wine press with a dedicatory inscription, uh, a prayer to Zeus to keep the hell away so that it won't destroy the grape harvest. Now, this specific example is actually from North Africa, not from Italy, but it is a testimony of a religious thinking that comes you know, into play in everyday life where things are, are important. Um, and uh, one thing about Roman Italy is that from a, you know, a relatively early date, and certainly the period we have referred to, you know, 200 BC to 200 AD, was um, highly urbanized, um, especially central Italy. A lot of small towns, uh, but this high level of urbanization meant that there was a very close link connection between the countryside and the town, and of course the countryside producing uh, and feeding you know, the towns. But the high level of, of uh, urbanization and the average distance between town being not that great, uh, you know, maybe 40 kilometers or so, meant also that it was possible to have periodic markets. It was possible for someone eventually to, you know, go around and try to sell and distribute things on different, um, uh, you know, in different towns, not just one destination. So the, especially central and some parts of southern Italy, the countryside develops and the exploitation of that natural resource in terms of agriculture, animal farming, um, really it's highly catered to, you know, the towns and the urban centers. And then you do have cases of productions that can be destined to um, transmarine exports. Uh, you know, there were regions of Italy that already in the Republican period, so starting about mid uh, second century BC, they were producing uh, wine that was exported uh, mainly to Gaul, where it was a prestige item, uh, but also other, other parts of the Western Mediterranean. Okay, so let's, let's cover um, to your last point there as a segue for food in general. Um, in that case, if it's a grape, it's food. If it's wine, it's, it's a beverage. Um, what was popularly grown in terms of produce, if you were to say maybe three to five things that were most popular based on your research, and what were the 
and same type of question. Uh, what were the top three to five types of animals that were raised? So, of course, cereals were very important. Um, different types of cereals. So we have wheat, and uh, at the beginning is mostly um, husk wheat that are grown, but over time we see naked wheat coming in. So basically bread, bread wheat, or we refer to it as bread wheat. So cereals is very important. Um, grape, so having vineyards and olive orchards, uh, both for producing olives that to be consumed as food, but then also to make olive oil, uh, were very important commercial crops, uh, followed by uh, fruit trees, orchards. So we have very common where uh, apples, pears, plums, uh, cherries are becoming more common from the first century BC onwards. And uh, among the vegetables grown, um, cabbages, definitely cabbage was a very common uh, type of uh, vegetable cultivated. And um, you know, Kato talks right about you know, the properties of cabbage that is really good for you, you should eat that. Um, and uh, pulses, so we have uh, chickpeas, lentils, beans. Um, very important to remember some very, you know, common and popular crops uh, for us are, you know, part of everyday life today, such as potato, tomato, this did not exist in ancient Rome. These are uh, new world crops. Um, so yeah, these are, you know, the most, the most common. In, when it comes to really uh, rural estates of the wealthier uh, part of the you know, population, um, where they really focus a lot in terms of surplus, in terms of what they want to sell and commercialize and make money out of. It's olive oil and wine. Uh, it's, it's not so much uh, cereals, um, partly because the added value on, on, on cereal is not as great as the added value could have one. So if you can, uh, yes, transport it and sell it somewhere, but you cannot really increase that, you know, the price you're going to sell it for so great because people won't, won't buy it. Wine is different, especially if it becomes famous, if it's, you know, it's a particular type of vintage that is appreciated. Um, another thing that I would like to um, explain is because perhaps if we think about our agriculture in more, in times that are closer to us, sometimes we have this idea of monoculture, you know, big fields with all the same type of crop, of, um, uh, but it was not like this. Um, the, there was always some kind uh, of intercropping uh, practice in ancient Rome. So even if you have uh, olive orchard, uh, the agronomist gives specific indication of how much space to live in between trees so that you could plant in between the rows of trees, cereals, for example, or you could grow, you know, legumes or something. So there is always a certain degree of intercropping and estates will never focus only one crop. They will always grow a variety of things. They might focus on one or two crops specifically in terms of um, trying to produce large surplus to be commercialized and sold, but they will also then grow, you know, some uh, vegetables and some fruits and some things, maybe just for internal consumption, you know, for the needs of the people who live there, the personnel, etc. In terms of, of animals, uh, farming of animals where we have, you know, cattle and we have um, 
um, goat and sheep, and we have pigs. Uh, these are very important um, as far as consumption is concerned, so for meat, and we see over time that in the Roman period, animals start becoming um, bigger uh, through selective breeding. Um, they you know, grow in size, which means they have uh, more, more meat, basically, uh, per uh, animal. And then with the later imperial period, 4th, 5th century AD, and then going into the medieval period, they become smaller again in size. Um, and of course, um, sheep were uh, important also uh, for wool, and uh, then there is as well the production uh, from from the milk, both of sheep and of cows, of cheese, which is some is a food that sometimes is forgotten, but it it is uh, it was important in the diet in antiquity. And then you have in some. Um, Rural estates, um, especially those who are close to Rome or close to other very large town. Now, it, it has been estimated that in the early first century AD, Rome had reached about one million inhabitants. Now, this is is massive, also by by you know early modern standards. I think that London reached that number only after the Industrial Revolution. Um, so there was a high demand from large metropolis like Rome or the center for also quality, uh, you know, food, uh, gourmet food. They were, you know, the wealthiest people uh, in Italy and the empire were living in Rome with the senators, etc. So the, you find um, large real estates around Rome that are also um, devoting their attention to what the ancient authors called pastio villatica, so the typical cultivation of the villa, which is basically to raise um, strange animals for uh, perhaps more unusual animals, but that they were still appreciated for banquets from the rich. So peacocks and wild boars, and uh, even, uh, you know, make sure that one is... Uh, having escargots, so snail and snails, because the Romans appreciated those uh, from a culinary point of view. Um, and uh, fish farming as well is attested. So, and this, this would have been production of food really for the wealthy, um, for the rich banquets where the variety of dishes served and the more unusual things served were uh, a way of social distinction, were part of that conspicuous consumption that... Uh, uh, Rome is known for. You mentioned you mentioned a lot there, and a very very detailed again. Thank you, Annalisa. Uh, you did mention something that stood out for me that I want to follow up on. You mentioned, and it was associated to potatoes and tomato, but I want to make sure I heard it correctly. And it was around a comment you made about uh, something not existing at the given time. In ancient Rome, can you expand on that that comment that you made? Yes, well, tomato and potato; these are new world crops. Uh, they come from the Americas, and until um, Christopher Columbus, you know, discovered uh, America, they didn't. Uh, they were not known in Europe. They didn't exist in Europe. Um, bell peppers, the same, the same thing. Aubergines, the same. 
so you know no no potatoes in ancient rome which it, it, it raised an interesting question because since potato then was um, introduced and cultivated so widely in europe has been very often you know saving the poor farmers you know in, in terms of subsidy of food that it's uh, relatively easy cheap and that very often constituted you know the main resource uh, but uh, that did not exist in the ancient Mediterranean. So the poorer people, uh, they had to rely perhaps on uh, um, full-on crops that normally were given uh, to where animal fodder, but could have been consumed like a bitter veg. It's part of the pulses. Uh, is normally is grown more as a fodder and to also being a, a part of the legumes families, the, the properties of enriching the soil. Um, but it was also consumed by people if, you know, there was times of uh, famine or if part particular problems. Um, generally speaking, on the whole, barley was considered more, as, you know, again, suited to to give to donkeys and mules and horses uh, to feed them. But, uh, you know, peasants, they would have been eating a lot of barley. And we can see this from documents from Roman Egypt, uh, where um, some documents survived there because of the wonderful dry climate that has preserved papyri and things like that. So that we see that actually some ordinary, you know, peasants, they might be eating things that if you read only the literary sources written by the educated rich you know elite they very often talk about what you know is their frame of reference so they will not perhaps want to eat barley because they think oh that's good for my donkey but actually ordinary peasants would so potato and tomatoes did not exist potatoes and tomatoes did not exist in no. ancient rome and uh, uh, aubergines or eggplants, as in American English, did not exist in ancient Rome. Bell peppers did not exist in ancient Rome. Interesting. I'm going to invert that question for the next next question. In your research, did you come across any genres of produce or animals? So not necessarily a version. So not not necessarily a a version of a legume. Did you come across an in, in, entire Cat, like an entire category or categories of produce or animals that existed in ancient Rome but would be extinct today? Um, let's see. Extinct today. Well, uh, there were um, there was a herb that was highly appreciated for you know the particularly not in, this was not from uh, Roman Italy was from uh, Roman North Africa, Silphium, the mythical Silphium, which we are not 100% sure exactly on the identification of this plant, but was extremely sought after for the, the juices uh, and the properties it had to the point that they, you know, it went extinct already at a certain point of the imperial period, it was no longer to be found. They had just uh, used it all. Um, it's not uh, really, you know, a, a plant food as such, but it's it's part of the the um, plants that were used and consumed. And um, so this is one example. Uh, let's see. Animals? No, I don't think I can think of anything. Um, 
and uh, other plants, other things, extinct, no, you have, you might have varieties that were developed that then got lost or with the centuries. Um, so, you know, there was a lot of interest in developing new varieties of whether it is, you know, olives or grapes or, uh, you know, apples and whatever. And we have even some of the names that are recorded in some of these uh, sources. Pliny the Elder is one that records a lot of these names. Um, and some of these varieties, you know, they, they don't exist necessarily anymore. More have been developed than throughout history. Uh, some authors have, uh, have studied the pictorial representation from places like Pompeii, you know, from the Bay of Naples in general, where we have a good number of wall paintings, uh, Roman wall paintings surviving. And very often a subject of Roman wall paintings is um, still lives, so depicting fruits or things like that. So there are also scenes like garden scenes. And so they depict, you know, fruits. And some authors have studied them looking at the details of, you know, the shape of the fruit, the, the leaf, you know, and compare with some of the kind of old varieties typical of Campania in modern time. And they have made an argument that there are similar, that perhaps some of the varieties that are still cultivated in some parts of, uh, of um, Campania uh, today are kind of, a, you know, descendants, as it were, of old Roman varieties. But it's, it's very difficult to prove this, although, um, now there is the science for potentially doing it in the sense that if you do have um, archaeobotanical remains of um, uh, seeds uh, or other part of a plant, of an ancient plant, you, and that is preserved enough that one could extract DNA, then they've been doing, um, uh, they've done for, for grapes, they've done studies, try to sequence this and then compare to modern cultivars and seeing that DNA sequence, if actually one can say, well, this, you know, this modern cultivar now, it's actually a descendant of a type that was cultivated in ancient Rome. So it's been done to an extent for grape and for olive. And in some cases, yes, they've seen a connection. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Did a floral industry or sector exist in this period that we're speaking about? Were flowers grown for the purpose of selling them and did Romans value flowers in their environments to some to some comparable degree like many civilizations would value that today? Yes, thank you for that question because actually yes, the answer is yes, there was. And indeed one of the things that Cato the Elder, uh, the first of those agricultural writers I mentioned towards the beginning, um, says in his treatise is like, you know, if you um, I have a farm not far from, from town, not from, from an urban center. So what you can do is really to have um, irrigated vegetable patch because you can grow vegetables for, uh, you know, to be sold there. And it also refers to flowers. You can uh, cultivate flowers because there is high demand of flowers for garlands, for banquets, for religious ceremonies. Um, so there was certainly cultivation of flowers. And the they were used a lot in religious ceremonies, they were very important uh, as offerings and decoration and etc. But also um, flowers, uh, specific type of flowers like violets were used, for instance, to scent the wine. So you would put in the wine to do a particular nice flavor. Um, there was, to an extent, even long distance trade of flowers, you know, as far as they could manage, 
without refrigeration to do this because we have, um, for instance, the poet Marshall, uh, who wrote in uh, under Emperor Domitian, so we are talking about the, the end of the first century um, AD, he refers to roses coming from Egypt and arriving to Rome and being sold in Rome. And indeed, Egypt is referred in other texts as the places where um, roses, you know, uh, were uh, cultivated near Alexandria and then where they were commercialized uh, also in other parts of the Mediterranean. Um, and flowers were very important also for perfumes, the production of perfumes, which were in antiquity oil-based, so not alcohol-based as our own perfumes, oil-based, but still all the various essences except from flowers. Um, in If we think about a domestic environment, now we, we do not know, we can't say whether the Buddha kept inside the house, you know, vase with flowers like we do, um, that we don't have the evidence for that, but in, from the gardens and, you know, even modest houses had a small garden, clearly there was a combination of plants growing there. Many plants were useful plants. There were plants that were also had either medicinal properties or used, you know, in cooking like herbs and things like that, but others, you know, were decorative, were, you know, flowers. So they will have, you know, roses, uh, oleander, which is a, a very common Mediterranean uh, plant. Uh, they would have had, you know, um, poppies and violets is one of the most common depicted in the world paintings. Uh, so definitely flowers were an important part. Okay. How prevalent was farming? If you were to describe, so if there's occupied property, whether occupied meaning that um, someone's, someone is actively there or live, living there in this case, and it's outside of an urban center, so it's in rural territories, and the land could be harvested, how, how prevalent would farming have been? Do you believe that, believe or know that all or nearly all those such lands would be farmed in some way, harvested in some, some way? Or do you think it was uh, much less than all or almost all? And if that's the case, why? Well, uh, by and large, the uh, level of exploitation of um, land was quite high in Roman time, and especially once we, we reached the uh, the imperial period, so first century, the restart picking. Uh, now, we, we are unable to give a specific statistic and say, look, of this specific region uh, or, or, or of this part of the Roman world, uh, you know, X percent was certainly cultivated and X percent was, you know, urban or whatever. We, are, uh, we don't have that full information. But what we do see in places like Italian Peninsula, but also in other, uh, other regions, is that um, Areas, for instance, on the higher part of the hills, even going all high up towards the beginning of uh, the elevation of mountains, uh, areas that were certainly forested from the Middle Ages all the way to you know modern time, uh, were actually cultivated in Roman times because remains of farms have been identified. Um, so there is um, a level of occupation on the landscape 
that it's it's quite uh, shows a certain you know level of of intensity in that exploitation. It's also important though to remember that the environment has changed uh, quite a bit um, since antiquity. So if we focus just on the Italian peninsula, there were many more coastal lagoons in antiquity than there are now. Um, the and the coastal lagoons were, by the way, very important, uh, you know, source of natural resources for other things. So we are not talking about farming per se, but that doesn't mean that these type of environments were not exploited somehow. For example, coastal lagoons were used for um, fish farming. They uh, were used to, you know, collect uh, reeds that then were used as, as props in viticulture. Um, coastal lagoons are a place where you can go, you know, hunting for uh, birds, for fowls and, you know, ducks and things like that. So that there is, and I would say this about, you know, Rome in particular, about all ancient civilization, that you try to take out of the natural environment all that is possibly useful to you. And that, you know, and that's why perhaps the in the Roman idea of agriculture, when uh, we look at the word agricultura in, uh, in Latin, which literally means not the cultivation of the field, but that heading agriculture includes also things um, that we may perhaps not think necessarily about agriculture, such as if your estate has um, clay beds uh, and fuel available where you can all manufacture, you know, tiles and bricks. And then, yes, also the amphorae, the container you might use to uh, distribute, you know, your oil and wine and things like that. Uh, if you have a quarry and a, it's a quarry of good building material, then you can, you know, you can exploit that as well. And that also can be discussed under uh, farming uh, from, a, you know, from a Roman point of view. Did distributors exist in this period of time? Were there people that it was their business to purchase produce or other types of product raised on a farm and then resell it to either another distributor or a merchant? If we think about the, the, the peasants, the small farmers, then very likely uh, they would be you know, directly trying to sell, and especially if they, they, uh, their farm was located not too far from, from a town or uh, some kind of, of uh, settlement, agglomerated settlement, they would probably you know, travel to town and uh, sell their produce. Uh, but when we move uh, and look at the larger estates, so those uh, that are really producing surplus on a sizable scale, then we do know that there were wholesale buyers, uh, they were called negotiatores in Latin, that they will go and purchase, for example, you know, we have referred several times to wine or olive oil, which are really very important uh, cash crops uh, in antiquity. So they will go and buy this product. The, the wealthy landlords, um, they were really not interested in commercializing directly the, the, their produce, uh, but they will sell to these wholesale buyers who then, you know, will uh, sometimes sell to another intermediary, sometimes be directly in charge of them, you know, distribution uh, within urban centers or other, other consumers. And it's interesting, we, we see, for example, in the, some letters by Pliny the Younger, um, 
this um, author was the nephew of the of the Pliny the Elder, the one who who died in the eruption of Vesuvius in AD 79. So Pliny the Younger left various of his letters for us, and um, several of them deal with one of his estates where he had a villa. Uh, in central Italy, uh, in uh, Tifernum, uh, Tiberinum. Uh, it's in what is um, today the region of Umbria in Italy. And uh, we know from the letters, but also from archaeological excavations that have identified this villa that one of the crops it was growing there was, uh, was great and was producing wine. And he writes that um, he had sold the grape harvest on the vine, which is, you know, a practice also known in modern times, and uh, that some, you know, uh, of the Roman farmer did use. So you sell it earlier on in the summer, um, perhaps at a lower price, but you are shielding yourself from eventual crop failure in case later on you might have, you know, a hailstorm, and then your grape is destroyed. So you sell that on the vine. Uh, to these regular wholesale uh, buyers that used to, you know, with whom he had been having dealings over the years. And then, indeed, there was a very bad weather close to harvest time, and most of the of the crop was ruined. And he's thinking long-term, Pliny the Younger. He's not thinking, simply thinking, well, okay, I had already sold it, you know, I made my money, who cares? Because he's relying on these wholesale buyers to come back the following years, he prefers to try to help them share the, no, shoulder the loss that they incurred uh, and give them basically remittance on you know the money on to him to ensure that they are kept in business so that they can come back you know the following year and the year after etc so it means also that perhaps um, establishing good relationship and good networks with these buyers wasn't necessarily always that easy that you you know my wife tried to have long-term uh, business relationship with a group of people rather than every time trying to deal with somebody new also because you didn't, didn't really know how much you could trust somebody. It all relied on specific reputation a person had, whether somebody else you knew and trust could recommend, you know, can I trust this person or not, and so forth. What was the government's role in farming during this period of time from perhaps a regulation perspective and or a requirement perspective, if they ever required farmers to support the state in any way? Well, the several provinces of, of the Roman Empire um, paid their taxes in kind, and especially those provinces that had a particular fertile agriculture. So if we take Roman Egypt, um, taxation in Roman Egypt was basically um, grain, uh, was paid in kind, and that grain was vital in uh, supporting the city of Rome because the, you know, cereal production of the peninsula would not have been enough to support the one million inhabitants of Rome. Um, and not just Egypt, there were other provinces, you know, that had paid their taxes basically in kind in agricultural produce. So there is the element in terms of needs and taxation and the state involvement in then moving this produce from one place to the other. Uh, they collect it, but then they need to transport it. So uh, through a combination of having uh, a dedicated state fleet to try to induce and offer incentives to private shippers to uh, transport this um, this grain, whether it is for Rome or perhaps supplies for the army. 
Um, and then there is, on occasion, that doesn't happen often. We don't we don't have that many, um, you know, cases that we know of this. But on occasion, the emperor seems to take an interest on a specific matter agriculture. In the sense, we have a reference to Domitian, Emperor Domitian, who who passed an um, imperial uh, decree uh, prohibiting planting of new vineyards uh, in Italy. Um, and also in some of the provinces. Uh, and what this is, uh, you know, information that we have in some of the ancient written sources, we are not sure if it was ever really applied, uh, if it was applied, how it would be enforced, who would be in charge of knowing whether you are, you know, starting on your vineyards or not, because it's not that the Roman state had an apparatus of, you know, policemen, forces that could really survive was the bureaucracy of, of Roman Empire was really minimal. Um, so we don't know whether it was ever enforced and we don't know the exact reasons, but something that has been suggested is that it was perhaps because there have been a particular series of bad harvests in terms of cereal production and was trying to encourage more you know, production of crops that were really needed for uh, the sustenance of the population rather than uh, focusing on grape and wine. But you know, we are not sure. <laughs> okay. Is there anything that we haven't covered in the conversation today, Annalisa, that you really want to make sure gets in this episode? Or is there a, a point that you want to emphasize about this topic before we wrap up? Um, one thing, one thing I wanted to say is that perhaps to dispel a bit an idea that we might have about classical antiquity, um, there is, you know, the idea that because slavery was so prevalent uh, in the classical world, there was really no concrete interest in um, the practical application of technological advancements, uh, even though they might have discovered the principles and the theoretical principle be behind certain things, I don't know, water power, for example, uh, that there wouldn't be really any incentive into trying to then find a practical application to this because you know the, the ready availability of slave uh, labor uh, would not have meant that find some kind of um, labor saving devices was um, uh, was really um, one of the priorities and i think that commonly perhaps uh, many people still think this um, but that's not actually the case because um, in more recent years, um, archaeological investigation have helped greatly on this. We've seen that if you take something um, very common but and very important when we think about processing um, cereal production, like a water mill, um, it was thought, you know, we, we knew that the, the Romans and before the Romans in the Hellenistic period, they were aware of how to build a water mill or the principle of using water power for this. Uh, we have description in the Roman author Vitruvius in his um, treatise on architecture also talks about water mill, but it was thought, well, they knew it theoretically, but they never really did it in practice. We don't have the remains. And it's only later on in the Middle Ages that really this um, takes off. And now we know that that's not the case. It's just that we exactly didn't know how to look for them, how to look for remains of water mills, where to look for them. And now there are many that are known, starting with the first century AD. Um, 
very interesting, um, very often on large villa estates, estates where they were also cultivating grapes and wines. Uh, we find the installation of water mills to, to you know, to mill the, the wheat. I think because they were indeed interested in um, how to best use the manpower that were available on the estate. So in trying to relieve uh, the daily chores of, you know, using a hand mill uh, and instead harnessing the, the water power. And, uh, and there are some other little areas of innovation in the field of farming that we you know we see. Um, I think the, the most important one, and we did mention that um, earlier on briefly, is really the degree to which uh, selective breeding, in the case of animals, selection of, uh, a, you know, in terms of plants from seeds or when it comes to plants that were reproduced by grafting or by cuttings, uh, which is how you normally reproduce a fruit trees uh, and, uh, and the grapevine, selecting specific traits and creating many, many new varieties and cultivars. That was really, really something um, that, you know, the variety, I think, of, uh, of plants achieved under Rome is great. Uh, and Archibotan is revealing this more and more in recent years. Okay. You did a great job today, Annalisa, providing a lot of details on a big topic inside of a reasonably short period of time. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you very much. So again, everybody, the two books that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Professor Marsano wrote, she's author of Harvesting the Sea, The Exploitation of Marine Resources in the Roman Mediterranean, and the forthcoming book, which she authored as well, Plants, Politics, and Empire in Ancient Rome. I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Annalisa and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast, and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.